Welcome to the Grace College Podcast, a ministry of Grace Bible Church located in College Station, Texas. We desire to impact students who will impact the world for Christ. Hope you enjoy the talk and hang around for more after. Howdy! We're so glad you're here this morning. Welcome to Grace Bible Church, Southwood Edition. If you have a Bible, we are in the Gospel of Mark, so flip over there, the Gospel of Mark. Uh, it's in the New Testament. It's uh, the second book of the New Testament. I'm going to read a few verses for us, and then we're going to watch a little video, and then we will jump in. And uh, uh, the video, I'll just set it up a little bit here before I read the verses. The video is, is this. We We've gone around to different people that attend um, our, our different campuses and, and talked about their experience of grace. We just asked them, hey, share your experience of grace. And so one, the one that we'll get to see is actually from a, from a Muslim uh, student. He, he was Muslim, and, and now he's a Christian. And uh, we'll get to hear uh, his story, which is pretty exciting. So I'm going to read a couple verses from uh, Mark chapter 1, and then we will jump in. Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 18. Now passing along the Sea of Galilee, he, that's Jesus, saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boats mending nets. And immediately he called to them, And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Let me pray for us and then we'll watch the video. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. And I pray that as we open your word, that we would see deeply into what you're trying to communicate in the calling of the disciples. And know that you're not just merely calling them to follow you, you're calling us to follow you. And so Lord, I pray that we would be willing to listen to your word this morning. Amen. Watch this. My name is Arsh Gather. My name is Paco Falcon. I'm Allison Pate. My name is Melissa Koo. And this is a story. And this is a story. And this is a story. This is a story of God's grace. I got into a really bad motorcycle accident. It was a really bad motorcycle accident. I mean, I shouldn't have made it out. When I fell on the ground, it, it almost seemed like I was a little lifted um, and saved. And after that, you know, I just started wondering, like, you know, what my purpose was in life. Everything about me, culturally, um, you know, family-wise, uh, emotionally, it was all, you know, an upbringing of, you know, being a Muslim. So I saw a lot of the stories and, you know, the scripture. Uh, it didn't really make sense at first. In my hometown, um, I visited a couple churches, and you know, unfortunately, my experience in those churches weren't so great because immediately, you know, I got, you know question about, you know, who I was, where I was coming from, what part of town I was from. And as soon as they found out that, you know, I was um, a Muslim at the time, then, you know, they just, you know, like, maybe you should try some other church, you know, I don't think it would fit here. And it was, it was hard because, you know, that was the first time I ever um, got enough courage to step into a church, you know, let alone, like, you know, study on my own. A couple weeks passed and I was like, you know what, no, I think this is just one church, you know. So I went to a neighboring church. Same thing happened. I had a big gap of absolutely not following faith, you know. And then I met with um, a really good friend of mine, and he he just randomly one day asked me, he's like, "Hey, do you want to go to church?" And I go to Grace Bible Church, and I was like, "Oh God, 
gosh, you know, I, this is a new town. So I was kind of nervous. I didn't, you know, I, I didn't want the same thing to happen, and especially in an environment that people would like, you know, remember me. So I, I, I still actually took the leap of faith and went and came to Grace, and that's that's how I found Grace. In that day, Jacob's entire spiel was um, about how our gospel is extremely offensive, but the people don't have to be. And that just, I mean, that, that was just like, I was on a cliff and, you know, I was just wanting to take that leap of faith and that was it. You know, he said those words and that completely changed everything. Yeah. And I was like, finally, someone, I got to hear it from someone, you know, who accepted, you know, the fact that the gospel is really, you know, offensive. But, you know, it's up to the people, you know, to show, like, the true, the true light. That was the biggest part of me being where I am. Isn't that fun? Love that. Love that. Love that. Well, we're going to talk about uh, the calling of the disciples. And I, and I think you'll see as we go through actually how that story ties into exactly what we're going to be talking about uh, this morning. And to start off simply with this, uh, you are shaped by the people that surround you. You, you know this. You are shaped literally by the people that surround you. So dudes, you know this. You can think back to your days in high school where you were with, you spent hours with that group of guys. And as you spent hours with that group of guys, that group of guys shaped you into who you are. So all of your comments to one another were basically uh, video game references and movies that you had watched together, right? So all you are, your communication is only through movie quotes. Girls is the same way. You're shaped by who surrounds you. And so I've seen packs of girls all over the place. It's almost the same thing every time. They start to hang out together a little bit more. They get to know each other a little bit better. And suddenly everything's an inside joke. And so there'll be a group of like 10 of them and they're like ah, 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 and then they all like bust out in this laughing you're like what are they doing you know but but there's something about them when you when you get around a group of people you start to become like them you start to adopt their behaviors you start to adopt their humor what they watch i remember when uh, when i was in in high school, literally, there was a group of guys that was uh, the best runners uh, and the best track guys. And so they decided that they were going to warm up for every race wearing jean shorts. Now, Kevin, you're like, Kevin, surely jean shorts were in style back then. Negative. They weren't. But they were going to rock the jean shorts and bring them back. And soon all of their posse behind them were all wearing jean shorts, warming up for their races. And you've seen this. We've all watched friends become shaped by the people they surround themselves with, right? And why? You may ask yourself, why is that? It's because as we watch people and we see people that are successful, we want to model their behavior. We want to do what they do. And so oftentimes we begin to wear what they wear. You see this with basketball players, right? They all wear the same attire. So if there's a professional basketball player that sits behind an interview desk and wears a fishing shirt and really tight jeans, all of a sudden every other basketball player is going to wear that same awkward shirt and tight jeans and big glasses. They all wear it. But not only that, just with artists, if you go in the artist community, go to the architecture school. Eventually, you'll see a normal person walk in, and they walk out dressed exactly like an artist. The same glasses, the same look, the same vocabulary. They, they all begin to look like that. And some of you, this summer, literally, you'll go work at camp. You'll go to Pine Cove, or you'll go to Sky Ranch, or some other great camp, and you'll be a part of that camp experience, and you'll walk in normal. 
And if you go to Pine Cove, you're going to walk out with some nickname, some notoriety about you, and that will be your new identity. And you may have never thought to buy Chacos in your life. But before you head to camp, you're going to be like, Mom, I, I totally need Chacos. Why do you need this pair of shoes? Because you can't be a camp counselor without it, right? And so whether you like to admit it or not, we're all shaped by the people we surround ourselves with. By, by the way that we talk, the way that we act, the clothes that we wear, we begin to be shaped by the people that surround us. And I tell you what, the, the truth is this. You're following someone. You are a disciple of someone. And the reason I start there is because that's where we are in the, this moment in the gospel. Where Jesus calls some people to follow him, to be with him, in order to become his disciple. And it's not just a call to them back there, it's a call to all of us. In fact, at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus sets up this statement for his men. When he's about to leave and leave them on their mission, he says this, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you till the end of the age. He tells his disciples, the men that followed him for his, his three years of ministry, I want you to go and do the same thing. I want you to walk this earth. I want you to bring in followers and I want you to teach them the things that I have taught you. This is the model that Jesus sets forth. And we see it's so unique. It's not just a call to them, it's a call to all of us. And the, the question I would ask you is why? Why should you be his disciple? Why should you fall in line after his life? And I'll tell you, there's three things from the big section we're going to look at this morning that proves this point. Three ideas that I want to give to you as to why you should be not merely a disciple of Jesus, but if you are, consider yourself a Christian, a follower of Jesus, why you should drive that nail a little bit deeper. And the first one is his call, that Jesus demands unparalleled devotion. Secondly, we'll see his authority, that he demonstrates unparalleled power. And thirdly, his reach, that he descends even to the undesirables. He reaches the people that no one else is willing to reach. And so the first thing that we see is this, that his call demands undivided devotion. And we see it in the passage we just read, Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. And it says that passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew. They were brothers, and they were working as fishermen with their dad. This was a common trade back in their day. And so typically, a young man would follow in the line of his father. You would do what your father did. And so these men were sons of fishermen, and so they were also choosing to be fishermen. And there's something unique that happens in this moment. He calls out, he points out to these disciples, and he says, Look, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me, and I'm going to change your career path, and I'm going to change your life trajectory, which is a unique call. Because in this culture, although you did have traveling teachers, traveling rabbis, you didn't have people call in this way. He actually had a very unique call on these guys. Now, there was an educational system in ancient Israel. Here's a little history for you. It's kind of fun. Um, it began at ages four to five called Beth Sefer. It was an elementary where the kids begin to lore, learn the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And after those, that, those first years of, of coming to elementary training, the best students could advance in their learning. And they became uh, what was known as part of this Beth Midrash. And so you studied more fully uh, the Old Testament. You got to know, know more about it. And it was only the best of the best that made that step. 
And if you were the best student, the smartest, most well-rounded, you had the opportunity to continue your education a further step and become what's called a Talmud. In other words, a disciple. You could be a disciple of a rabbi. And the way you would do this is if you were the top student from your class, as you studied under your rabbi that was in your community, you would approach him. And you would ask him the question, Rabbi, can I be your Talmud? Can I study underneath you? Can I be your disciple? And then that rabbi had the opportunity to either accept or reject you based on whether or not he thought you had the ability to follow in his steps, whether or not he thought he could make you into a rabbi of your own. But Jesus flips all of that. He doesn't go through this process of selecting these men. He goes to these guys that are fishermen. They were learning their father's trade. What did that mean? It meant they'd already been through the first kind of training but they had already been rejected by the perfect schools of the day. The people that had got into the best schools, the best and the brightest, were already selected. These men were passed over. They were day laborers. They were working class, blue collar dudes that Jesus walks up to and says, hey, you, drop it, come after me. And so his call is unique. He says, look, first of all, follow me. And they didn't do it in that culture. The other thing they wouldn't do in that culture is they didn't necessarily leave their community or their father's trade. They would continue working under the father as they're continuing this educational process. But he says, drop it and walk with me. So not only is his call unique, secondly, his call is exclusive. It's exclusive. He says, I want you to follow me. And he goes on a little bit further and he gets two other brothers and he tells them the same thing. Hey, come follow me. And immediately he says they dropped everything. They left their father and his servants and they immediately followed Jesus. And Mark wants to show you something here. His call is immediate and complete. He demands undivided devotion from these people. It's an exclusive calling and Jesus' calling always is that way. And you may push back on that when I say Jesus' calling is exclusive and complete. Some of you may push back on that and say, why is that so narrow, Kevin? But the truth is this. We all follow this form of follow-me discipleship in other areas. So there's apprenticeships or if you want to learn a particular trade or skill. I had a buddy of mine uh, who tried to go to college, didn't work out for, for him, and so he decided to become a carpenter. And so if he wanted to become a master carpenter, what's the process? You become an apprentice of a master carpenter. That means you go where he is and you study the things that he teaches you. We see this in the medical profession. Some of you want to be doctors in the future? No. (laughs) Maybe one or two of you. They're going to dictate your future. They have a program literally called a match, right? Where you submit options and they tell you your future. You don't get to debate that. You're like, I really would like to spend my education process in Hawaii. Can I match there? They'll be like, no, you're going to be in Albuquerque. Sorry, buddy. You know, and you'll match wherever they tell you. You see this in music, right? Dr. Dre, he brought up the young Eminem. He's like, buddy, you come follow me. And people are giving him flack. They're like, why'd you pick up this white kid? And he's like, I don't care if he's purple. The boy's got talent. He's going to come with me. You see this with Justin Bieber, right? He's living in Canada, making his little videos. And then Usher says, come on, buddy, come on down here. And I'm going to make you into something new. You see this in education, right? Why are you here in College Station? Did all of you grow up in College Station and said, I'm just going to be bleeding maroon till I die in College Station? Negative. 
You move from Dallas or Houston, the majority of you, right? You move from major cities or other locations all to this place, and you didn't find it to be narrow-minded or bigoted of A&M to say, you know what? If you want to be an Aggie, you got to be here. You've got to come to this place, submit yourself to this authority, be in this area. And some of you are going to get careers after college, right? And what is that business going to tell you? If you want to be an engineer, you're going to come to Houston. My wife's dad worked for Shell Oil. And part of moving within that organization was the process of choosing what is your career path. And you know what? Shell Oil determined his future. At one point in his career, he, he had the decision to go to Nigeria or Malaysia. Those were his options. If you want to stay in my company, here you go. And I think the other one was like Siberia. And he was like, oh, not Siberia. And, and so he picked Malaysia for a while. You see, all across our culture, there's this, this field of follow me. Follow me if you want to be a doctor. Follow me if you want to be educated. Follow me if you want to play in the NBA right now. Your best or most favorite NBA players may have gotten traded as we've seen the NBA trade deadline come across. See, across our world, we basically say, if you want to play, you've got to pay. If you want to be a part of this, you've got to come with me. And we're okay with it in lots of areas. But have you ever asked the question, why? Why am I willing to follow them? Why am I going to follow them? Who am I going to follow? Because the answer is simply this. You're going to follow someone. You're going to choose to align your life behind someone. And I'll tell you who you choose to align your life behind. This is why companies determine your future. This is why most of your friends who chose to go to college, you've chosen to go to those particular colleges with. This is why you align yourself. Because you believe that by lining your life behind that agenda, that call, it will produce the life you want. You believe that if I line myself behind this profession, this will make me a great doctor and I want to be a surgeon or whatever, so I'm going to walk this line that, they li- that they've lined out for me. For others of you, it's I want to be an Aggie. Because I know once I graduate and I got that ring, we have an Aggie community and everything will be perfect and we'll be seeing Kumbaya for the rest of our life. Like there'll be this great trajectory in life. See, every one of us follows an exclusive call. The question is this, which call are you going to follow? And all Jesus is saying is, look, if you want to be my disciple, you've got to come where I'm going. If you want to be my disciple, You can't choose to follow whoever you want and land there. You've got to simply follow me. And the question that should arise in your mind is this. Why should I follow him? One commentator, William Lane, says this. The urgency in Jesus and the radical obedience of the fisherman pose the question, who then is this who calls? Who speaks like this? Who calls someone and they immediately drop everything and follow him? And I believe that in the rest of our section, we're going to show you two reasons why you need to follow him exclusively. The first reason is this, his authority, that he demonstrates an unparalleled authority. And secondly, his reach. See, over the next two chapters, Mark says one phrase over and over and over again to show you the trajectory of, of this life of Jesus that there's an immediate expectant move in Jesus. 
I mean, everything happens immediately, excitingly. It's like one action moment after another. He doesn't use a lot of words. He just says, these are the things that happen. And there are five areas that I want to fly over quickly to demonstrate Jesus' authority and why you should line in your life behind him. We see it primarily this, his words and his works. Why should you become his disciple? Because of his words and his works. The first one is that we see is, is his teaching. In Mark chapter 1, verse 21, it says this. Now, and they, that's the disciples that all went with him, went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. The synagogue was the place of learning. It was where everyone gathered together to hear teaching. And he was, and he was there and was teaching. In verse 22. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. The first level of authority we see is in his teaching, the way that he spoke. And they compared it. It says he didn't teach us like one of the scribes. He taught us as one with authority. And that's interesting. See, the, the way the scribes taught is they would always quote some higher learner. They would quote another rabbi or another teacher to authenticate what they were saying. But Jesus was different. He didn't quote anyone else. He says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard all these people with all these opinions, and I'm not talking about those opinions. I'm telling you, this is the way that it is. And as they're hearing his teaching, they're astonished about what he's saying. He has intelligence that they've never seen. He has wisdom that they've never experienced. There's a movie that came out a long time ago, and it was called Goodwill Hunting. I got all these awards. Uh, Robin Williams was in it. And it's the story of this kid who grew up in the middle of nowhere, like this kind of podunk part of, of, uh, of Boston. And so he was a rough character, rough dude, and he, they would go over to Harvard, right? And so they had their Boston accent, and they would go over to Harvard, and they would mess with the girls in Harvard and, and kind of show how smart they were. But there was only one dude who was actually smart. It was Matt Damon, right? And so they walked into this, they're like talking, and he's... One of his buddies is trying to pick up this girl and the rest of these Harvard dudes walk over and they start showing, hey, you can't mess with our Harvard girls. Let me show you what I'm going to do. And they start asking him intense questions. And obviously this dude, Ben Affleck, he's not as sharp as Matt Damon, whatever. And so he couldn't answer the tough questions. And then suddenly we get to see the intelligence of this dude step up. And he starts asking him questions. He's like, yeah, I read that book. That's on page 525. I read that book too. Are you just going to quote the whole thing for us? And he starts tearing down this guy's argument. And then his buddies are in the back going, that dude's a wicked smart, right? And so that's kind of their way. And they're like, that's amazing. And that's like this moment with Jesus. He walks into the place of learning and says, boom, here's some knowledge to drop on you. And everyone's going, this is incredible. But it's not just his words. It's his authority. It's when I'm listening to this guy, he's, he's opening up the scripture in ways that I've never seen. He's enlightening my mind in ways that I never thought about. And Mark doesn't give you much time to think about what he says because something else pops up. Because it's not merely Jesus' words, it's his works. And we see that he has power over the spiritual realm. It goes on, verse 23, and immediately, there's our word. There was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I, I know who you are, the Holy One of God, but Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsed him, and crying out with a loud voice came out, and they were all amazed. So they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? 
a new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once the fame spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. And so it wasn't merely the things that he was saying. It was the power he was displaying. You ever wonder why Jesus was so popular? You ever wonder why all these people were following this this Jewish carpenter in the middle of podunk nowhere? It's because of his words and his works. And you may not believe in a spiritual realm. And that's beside that. They did. And they saw a guy that was demon-possessed jump out and start speaking, and he just goes, silent, done. And it happened. You see, they had a way to to exercise demons in that day in which they would have all these incantations, you know? So if this was a movie, this would be a very lame horror film, right? Because in our horror films, right, if we got someone possessed by a demon, their head's spinning, everyone's freaking out, people are like, power Christ compels you, you know, it's all freak-out moment. And Jesus is like, shh, done credits roll, right? If this was a movie, it would be a very short interaction. And everyone, when they see this, is absolutely astonished at what he's doing. He has power in his words. He has power over the spiritual. And Mark doesn't give you much time to think about it. He moves over and immediately, verse 29, and immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew and John and James and John. Now Simon's mother was laying ill with a fever And immediately, they told him about her. And he walked over and said, done. She gets up and she starts baking him cookies. I mean, it's amazing. He's got power over the demonic. He's got power over sickness. And it doesn't give you much time to think about it. They bring everyone who's in in sick, who's in disease. They all flood the house. They can't even get a good night's sleep as he's healing all of these different people. And then the most crazy moment happens. The uncurable disease shows up at his doorstep. In Mark chapter 1, verse 40 and 42, we see it. It's the cleansing of the leper. There's only two other recordings of a healing of a leper in Scripture. Both of them were directly by the hand of God, by Moses and then by Elijah. And in this moment, this man with leprosy came to him. Now, leprosy is basically a generic term for any type of skin disease. But here's what's unique about any skin disease in that culture. You were immediately rejected from society. You had to walk away from all of the community so you wouldn't spread your disease. And if anyone approached you, you had to yell out, unclean, unclean. And so this man who had been living a significant portion of time, isolated and alone, walks up to Jesus. No one had ever healed a disease like this. And the leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeled and said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. See that faith? He's like, I've watched you, Jesus. I've seen what you've done. And hey, if you're willing, like you can make me clean. He says, moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. Verse 42, and immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Immediately, the uncurable, he steps in and heals. And at this moment, you may be thinking to yourself, okay, so Jesus is traveling healing guy. He teaches a little bit and he heals a little bit. He's, he's helping. He's like, he's like the helper guy, right? Like that's the box we can put him in. He's like, he's like traveling helping guy, you know? Like he's got a clown car of helps. Like you need a Band-Aid, I got a Band-Aid. You need a drink, I got a drink. You know, he's traveling helper guy. And sometimes we like to put Jesus in that box. But Jesus is gonna do something in this next moment to you to break every box open. 
See, he's not merely a traveling helper. He says, I want you to know who I am, and I want you to not merely look at my words, look at my actions. And he unites two things together in this next insane moment in chapter 2. I'm going to summarize it for you, and I'm going to read a couple verses to you. He's at a house, and the buddies bring their friend in, the paralytic. He's paralyzed. And they know that Jesus is the one that can touch him because they have the box that I think a lot of people have is if you have a problem, Jesus can heal it. That's why you come to Jesus. You got a problem, he'll fix it. And so they literally tear the roof off, you know, like you do, right? You need a guy to see Jesus, you just rip the roof off. Like, it's crazy, you know, you rip the roof off and they start lowering the guy in. And Jesus, what he could have done is just healed it. And we've seen that in the past. He did this immediately. Every time he would speak, someone was healed, something would happen. But Jesus wants to break that box. And he says, I, I, I want you to, I want to take this moment and this healing to prove something different. In verse 5, it says, he, he saw their faith and he says to the paralyzed person, verse 5, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes who were sitting there questioned in their hearts. They weren't even thinking it. They, were, they weren't even saying it. They were just thinking it. Why does this man speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins? But God alone. And immediately Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were questioning within themselves. They didn't even say this. He says, I know their question. So they lowered the guy in. What is this guy's problem? He's paralyzed. What does this guy need to walk? In that culture, if you couldn't walk, you couldn't earn a living, you were left as a beggar. And he says, this guy just needs to walk. But Jesus says, no, the most important thing for him and for all of us, by the way, isn't two healthy legs. In fact, he's going to take this moment to say, I want to tell you, I'm here to do more than just fix your problems. I'm going to reach down and meet your deepest needs. He says, your sins are forgiven. And all these people around there are going, that's just crazy talk. Who can forgive sins? That's blasphemy. You're claiming something that only God can do. And, and think about it. If you and your friend uh, got in a fight, and you were angry at one another. And then I walked in and said, your sins are forgiven. You'd be like, Kevin, you have nothing to do with this argument. What are you saying? Like, no, forgiven. You're like, what? You, you weren't even part of this deal. Like, we can forgive each other, but you can't touch this. In that culture, they believed the reason you were sick was because of something you did, probably to someone else. And it was God alone who could bring forgiveness God smited you, and it was God who could fix you. And Jesus asked them a question. Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? Well, which is easier? Your sins are forgiven, or get up and walk? Which is easier to say? Well, it depends. I mean, at one level, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because I can't verify it, right? I can't quantify it. It's not like all of a sudden you had brown hair and now you have blonde hair, right? We can't, we can't see it that way. But Jesus unites the two to prove that the Son of Man has the ability to forgive sins. Get up and walk. To prove that I have authority, not merely in my words, but my works. Stand up and walk. And immediately the man walked up, stood up, and walked home. And Jesus is showing us, I'm unlike anyone you've ever encountered. I can do things that no one else can do. 
I'm, I'm so unique amongst everyone who has ever walked the earth. And I'm uniting two things that no one would ever unite. I have the power to forgive your sins and to prove it. Here are all these actions. And you know what Jesus is doing? He's trying to show us who he really is. He's trying to show us what he's really come to do. Jesus is not here to make you a better person or to help enhance your life a little bit. He calls undivided devotion because there is something he can offer you that every one of us need, the fixing of this world. See, every miracle is meant to authenticate a message. Everything Jesus did was to point to something bigger that he was doing. And I love this quote from Tim Keller because he communicates it more clearly than I ever can. And if you have not heard me give this quote, I strongly encourage you to read it and think about it. It's one of my favorite quotes from Tim Keller. He says this, We modern people think that the miracles is a, as a suspension of the natural order. But Jesus meant them to be the restoration of the natural order. The Bible tells us that God did not originally make the world to have disease or hunger or death in it. Jesus has come to redeem the world where it was broken. His miracles are not just proofs that he has the power, but also a wonderful foretaste of what he's going to do with that power. Jesus' miracles are not just a challenge to our minds, but a promise to our hearts that the world we all want is coming. I want you to think about that for a moment. If Jesus really could heal every disease, if Jesus really could do every miracle that we see recorded, would you not want him to come fix all the world? Would you not want him to restore everything? And, and what Tim, is, Tim Keller is saying, what Mark is showing is there will be a day that that man with that power comes to this earth and fixes everything. We are setting our life behind him. But as soon as I say that, I, I think so many of us can think of reasons why we wouldn't want to put our life behind him. Because if that man has that much power, my, all, my question is this, how is he going to use it? If that person has that much authority, how is he going to use it? Because we've all been in situations where people with great power have used that authority to abuse it. I mean, we've seen right now in our culture, in the political climate, people with a lot of power are choosing to run their country in a certain way. The leader of North Korea recently killed, or is alleged to have killed, his brother. I mean, we've all seen people with tremendous power use it in oppressive ways. But I want you to look at what Jesus does with his power. He has all the authority to fix everything that's broken, and he's going to. But what does he do with it? The first thing he says is he touches the leper. He walks to a man who could only yell out, unclean, unclean. And he says, if you just touch me, you can fix me. And he goes and touches him. Have you ever seen someone with a dramatic skin disease? Someone that, that has been crippled by, by a, some sort of ailment? It can actually be scary to look at. It can actually be terrifying to look at this person that is malformed in that way. And there's only a few people in history that have gone out to reach them. There was one man named Father Damien. And Father Damien went to Hawaii where, where there was a leper colony on Hawaii. And he was, a, he was a, one that loved Jesus, followed Jesus. He was a Catholic person, but he loved the Lord. And he went to reach out to these people. 
And at first, he did not have the disease, and he just cared for and loved these people who were in this terrible climate, and, and he just encouraged them, I'm, I'm here with you. And eventually, he contracted the disease, and he told the people, um, I'm no longer just serving you, I'm now one of you. And he served them even into his death, and then they wanted to take his body back and be buried in his home country. But the people pleaded, hey, cut off his hand and send it to us, because we want the hand that touched us to be with us forever. I mean, there's something beautiful about someone with a lot of power reaching down tenderly and just helping. And the text goes on to say he calls another person. He calls Levi. And he walks over to Levi, and Levi's a tax collector. In that culture, that was one of the the worst jobs. It means means you hated your own people and you were going to exploit your own people. That was what a tax collector was. He says, come and follow me. And then that night, he had a dinner party at Levi's house, Matthew, who wrote the Gospel of Matthew, he hangs out and has a party at Matthew's house. And it says that all the sinners and tax collectors are there. In fact, other people are freaking out. Why are those people around you, Jesus? Why are you allowing yourself to be surrounded by these types of people? And I want you to look at this. He touches the rejected and invites in the dejected. He touches the rejected. And he invites in the dejected. I mean, these people knew that they were tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. They knew the types of people they were. They didn't expect Jesus to come. But as soon as he was willing to touch, they flooded. And I don't know if you've been around people that have abused their authority. I remember when I was in when I was in seventh grade, uh, I had a basketball coach in city league basketball, and the dude had uh, what I nicely like to call Napoleon complex, right? Little dude, and he was going to make these seventh grade guys who didn't make the junior high basketball team into champions, right? So he's not working with great material as it is, right? That's why I was on that team, right? And we're there, and he's yelling at us. He's oppressive to us. He was like, you've got to play. And I remember by midway through the season, I didn't even want to dribble the ball up the floor because I was terrified that this dude would yell and attack me. Some of you, that's your picture of Jesus. I don't want to come near him because he's just going to yell at me about what I do wrong. But then the next year, I had a new coach who had an entirely different frame of reference, an entirely different reference point. Once again, City League basketball, eighth grade, clearly didn't make junior high basketball team. And I went to this guy, and and he took us, a bunch of misfits, and said, gentlemen, we're going to play, and we're going to have fun, and we're going to work hard. And I remember just being under this guy and seeing the joy in his face, seeing the way that he led us. And I remember at one point during the season, we were just having fun. We were throwing behind-the-back passes, playing, and we won that little league. And I remember looking at that coach and being like, two years, two dramatically different experiences. Why? Because one man uses authority to oppress, and one man uses his authority to love. And when you use your power, your authority to love everyone's lifted up. Everyone gets to play. And so why do you sit your life behind this man? Because he uses his power to make you better. He uses his authority to make you what you long to be, truly his and the best version of you. And that's what we see in the disciples. In Acts chapter 4, verse 13, we see a little Insight, insight into what these disciples are like. 
They stand up. This is after Jesus has died. They stand up and Peter preaches a sermon and he speaks and everyone's amazed. And in Acts chapter four, verse 13, it says this. And when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. You see, for me, when I read the stories of the disciples, I always thought there was some X factor in them that Jesus saw that no one else could see. I mean, Peter, who is just a fisherman, is really like a great leader, and, and all he needed to do was just give his life to Jesus, and then Jesus would, would show that leadership talent. Or maybe there was some other X factor in John, and it just needed to be unearthed by Jesus, but, but that's not what Acts says. It says they were uneducated and ignorant. How do you know if someone's uneducated and ignorant? The way that they speak. It's their draw. It's their accent. It's what you like to do. You know, it's like that Texan thing or that Arkansas thing, that draw that makes them sound uneducated. They had something like that because as soon as they spoke, they're like, these guys are a bunch of idiots. But then as they continued to preach in power, they took note of something. There's no X factor in them. The X factor is Jesus. He made lowly men to be great men. He made lowly followers to be champions of his gospel. And I'll tell you this. The reason you need to line your life behind Jesus is because no one lived the life that this man lived. No one did the things that this man did. And this man can change you to be someone who truly loves and truly reaches people in this world. Last story as we close. One of, my, one of my heroes is a dude named, a guy named D.L. Moody. And he was a guy who was uneducated, never had beyond a, a junior high education. And never expected great things from D.L. Moody until one day he was, he was working as a shoe salesman and one guy walked up and said, hey, I want to tell you about someone that can change everything. His name's Jesus. He's like, I don't want anything to do with that. And eventually this guy, Edward Kimball, kept on inviting him in. And eventually, D.L. Moody became saved. And that man, as he continued to grow as a young man, said, okay, I'm going to dedicate my whole life to to Jesus. That's what I'm going to do. And he starts dedicating time and energy to Jesus. And and eventually, he he goes to the worst area in Chicago at the time, an area called the Sands, where all the prostitutes and lowly kids, a bunch bunch of orphans would all gather, and he would lure them all in with candy, and he would teach them the gospel. It became such a big deal that Abraham Lincoln even visited that area. And that he began starting these same areas all over the world. And at his funeral, one of the guys that, that talked with him said, Dio Moody had one talent, and he prayed that God would give him more. He says, all across the world, there's people that, that say, what could God do with one fully dedicated life? And they say, well, we'd probably never see it. He says, but we have in the life of D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody, a barely educated man who'd walk up to preach sermons with three points, two of them misspelled, led thousands of people to Jesus. He spoke at Spurgeon's Church, the Brooklyn Tabernacle in London, which was, had thousands of people in London, and people were astonished at his power. And he, and he says, look, I'm just a nobody who lined in my life behind Jesus, and Jesus changes everything. He's worth your undivided devotion. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. And Lord, I know that there's so many of us that 
that are aligning our lives behind an education, a, a, a future, a, a life that we believe will bring us the hope, the joy that we need. I pray that, that we might see that it's only through following Jesus Christ in any avenue that he alone can provide the thing that we need most. And Lord, I pray that for those of us who consider ourselves to be disciples, we would drive our knees deeper into discipleship, that we'd follow you with our whole life. And for those of us that are just trying to figure out where we're at with you, that you would open up our hearts and see that it is in the power alone of you, Jesus, that we can be changed to be people that we most long to be. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Have a great time in discussion.